and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 295 and part one of my conversation with percussionist Stephen Landy. Let's get right to it. Over the years, as I've been doing the podcast and working at Mizzou, I've been connected to those students who have been getting their master's in percussion and studying with Dr. Megan Arntz. I've wanted to have those who are graduating and moving on to bigger and better things to be on the show and to see where they are, where they were, and where they're moving on to. It's been a few years since I've been able to have one of these folks on, but this year we had three people who graduated with Masters in Percussion, and I will be presenting their episodes in succession here. So this week, we'll be talking to Stephen Landy. Stephen just completed his master's in percussion at Mizzou and will be heading back to his hometown area on the east coast of Florida to work with high schools and get his foot further in the door in the world of percussion. Now, to be fair, in this particular case, even though Stephen had been around for the past three years, our paths nearly never crossed. Stephen was involved in the New Music Initiative, which was his graduate teaching assistant position, and was frequently involved in a lot of performing, both in studio and outside, but not in any direct way that I was in contact with. So, in a lot of ways, this is just Stephen and I getting to know each other for the first time, which was a lot of fun. We had so much fun, in fact, that we went ahead and went long, so this episode will be pushed out in two installments. This week, we'll get to Stephen's time at Mizzou, the challenges of playing so much recently composed music, with the New Music Ensemble and within the studio of percussion, his upbringing in Florida, his time playing guitar, and spend a bit of time discussing the greatness of the Beatles. Next week, in part two, you'll get the rest of the story. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 17th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Stephen, I want to begin with your uh, your master's recital. Uh, okay. What you performed on it, kind of the who you were playing with, all of that stuff. Yeah, so I played uh, two movements of Lansky's Hop, um, or sorry, three moves. Um, I played Hop, one of the movements, and then I also played Turn, the second movement. Uh, that one was pretty fun but pretty challenging definitely the hardest piece on my recital uh specifically hop um it was kind of you know kicking my butt for a good good portion of last year turn i really liked uh that's probably like one of my favorite things to play it's very kind of still groovy but like in a very calming kind of way usually everyone just does hop from that set and you don't usually get that the the other movement yeah it, it's either it's either like hop where they do all three right right i do looked at the the first was it the first movement that's not that you didn't do or the third one it was a third one slide yeah. Um, yeah i did look at it i was like oh this is gonna be just as hard as hop i might uh <laughs> i might take a pass on this one for now yeah um i wouldn't mind learning it later but uh yeah it was just a lot of notes. So I also played a vibraphone solo from Keegan Fountain, I Dream of the Moon. 
that piece was really fun too. I got to meet Keegan at PASIC. Super, super cool guy. How'd you find the piece? I found the piece uh, from a list of pieces. I forget exactly what the list was, but it was uh, um, it was like a collection of pieces that um, I think I don't remember if it was Dr. Arns or Connor Stevens. It was during that semester that Dr. Arns was away for uh, maternity leave, and um, there's like a little project that we had to do where we were supposed to put together like a like a recital or a percussion ensemble program. I chose to do a recital. And um, that was one of the pieces I decided. And I found a recording of it. Super, super cool recording. Um, very programmatic piece. It's all about like this story of this, this kid going to the moon. Um, and each movement is kind of a different part of that story. There's like a whole part about aliens and getting kidnapped by aliens and trying to escape the aliens and stuff like that. So it's pretty fun. Very challenging as well. Uh, a lot of very fast notes, super, super fast notes. I played another piece, a Cretale solo, and that was a part of a collection of kind of like a project. I forget exactly the name of the project, uh, but it was from uh, Joe Moore. And mm-hmm. it was just a project for where he would write like a composition think a week every week he would write a composition for like a month and that was one of the uh pieces that he wrote apparently he he liked it and a lot of other people liked it so much that he ended up writing another Cretale solo I forget the name of it but um yeah this isn't his only Cretale solo which is super cool Shell is Emerald Halloran we played this piece a lot um (laughs) I think we played it on my recital, Colton's, Liz's. We did not play it on Emily's, uh, but we also played it for percussion ensemble. Um, super fun piece. Pretty, uh, not too challenging um, in terms of like notes and stuff like that, but uh, definitely a little bit of a challenge when playing together and getting it to work. But uh, the reverb, super yeah. cool effect there. Um, and yeah, I, I really like the, uh, kind of echoing effect of that piece. And in that room too, it's really effective. Oh yeah. That recital hall is super, super wet. So, um, yeah. And very fun to play with Emily, Liz and Colton. Um, it was super fun to play with them. I got to play with Liz again for another piece, uh, called Sympathy by Evan Chapman. And that piece is another electronics piece, though a little bit different. It's got the microphones. You kind of dangle them over your shoulder, and you have to move them up and down on the vibraphones. You also get a – I think the name is titled based on the sympathetic vibrations that you get from the snare drum, Um, the couple snare drums that are in the back. uh, I think that's why he he named it. That would be my assumption. Um, Yes. It's one of those – the fun thing with that is is that you see the snare like – boost it up with and you're it's one of those where you're just looking at like i don't know what's gonna happen but it's gonna be cool (laughs) we had it we had it looking really wild because we had it like (laughs) tilted towards the audience yeah um so that the speakers could get just the back uh the bottom head and um so you're probably looking at it like 
what what is that? How do you even play that? You know, it's like almost completely vertical. Yeah. But yeah, we didn't, we don't play it at all. Uh, a, that's the secret, you know. But you have very dramatic uh, snares on, snares off moments. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like stop playing, go over there, click, <laughs> click. Uh, yeah, that, that piece was really fun. Um, really fun to put together and work with Liz on that too. Uh, Liz is a very good player. Very, yeah. very good player. <laughs> um, she'll she'll be doing a lot. Uh, no, I know she's going off to do the Soci thing this this summer, which is really cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, super fun to play with her. Uh, and then the last piece, of course, was my piece I wrote, um, which it started off as just drum set and Glock. Um. I came up with that idea from kind of almost an embarrassing moment, sort of, kind of, not really. Um, in undergrad, I walked in on one of the grad students at uh, at my undergrad, and he was, like, jamming out to, like, it was, like, a snare drum, kick drum, hi-hat, and then he had, like, a set of cartales just set up in, like, the back closet of the percussion room. And uh, I, like, heard it, and I was just like, that sounds kind of cool. Who's doing that? You know? And I walked in and I opened it up and it was just like, like deer in the headlights looking at me. Like I caught him or something. And I was like, no, continue. Like that was cool. Like, like um, and so I kind of got that idea. I was like, Oh, well, I don't really want to do Kratales cause you know, that might not be as easy. Right. Not, not a whole lot of people have Kratales, but I was like, Glocks kind of a similar effect. Uh, very common. Um, so that might be a good idea. Uh, plus, you get a box Glock. It's super easy to set it up, you know, pretty low so that you can sit stuff. Um, and so I started writing that, and it just kind of came out as just like one big groove that I was super into and digging for that time period. And I ended up just putting that groove like I think like five or six times throughout the piece. If you see the actual way I wrote it out, it looks the same every time. Um, but every time I play it, it's a little bit different. And that's where kind of like the improvisation comes in with that piece is, uh, specifically in that section, but also throughout other sections as well. Um, I kind of kept the writing part very basic. And then I kind of, while I was practicing and practicing it and putting it together, I kind of expanded on it a lot. Well, and you, there was the whole decision of what sticks you're going to use to play it. Yeah, uh, that was very weird. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had no idea. Like, my original plan was that I was going to hold four. That I was going to have two sticks and then two mallets. And then that was just what I was going to do. But then I realized very quickly that that was not a good idea. It just became way too weird and not as cool looking as I wanted it to be. There's like a few sections where I was like, I just want to like look and sound like I'm rocking out, you know, <laughs> and with all these, you know, claws, it, it didn't seem like it was going to be that kind of effect. So I decided, okay, well, I need to find a stick slash mallet that I can use that'll get both the Glock sounding okay and the drum set sounding okay. And so I ended up finding those those Vic Firth like uh, wood timpani mallets 
and that was what I ended up using. I ended up using those for, I think, I think I used those for Raybons as well, my first semester at Mizzou. Um, and that was like, my, I think that was when I bought them because I think Dr. Orange was like, hey, you should get these mallets because they would sound pretty good. And I was like, okay, cool. So I got them and then I haven't used them since then. And then this past semester, I used them a couple of times. I think I used them for the, uh, uh, when the orchestra played um, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite 2. Um, I was playing timpani on that. Like, yeah. Yeah, wood mallets. And I was like, yeah. Got him. Well, the the good news on on the wood mallets is you just flip the ones over. I'm like, oh, I always got wood mallets, you know. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't considered that it would they would be chipped, but yes, of course, when you're play, using them to play uh, Glock, yes, they will be chipped. Yeah. <laughs> that was the weird part. Was like one one session I was practicing it, uh, it just came flying off i had like this little it was it was super small too like both mallets it's wild both mallets had like the smallest little chip come off of them um uh-huh. on different sessions too and uh I, at that point i was like do i continue practicing with them or do i use something else and then like just save these for the performance i decided to just screw it we'll just keep using them um i actually had a glock mallet that I broke while practicing that piece because I was trying out a set of Glock mallets. And on the first session I was practicing them, split right in half from, uh, I think I, I forget exactly what I hit, but I hit, um, I think it was the hi-hat that I hit. And I just hit it in a weird way and it just cut it in half. So there were electronics with that piece too. I kind of added that later. Um, that was actually last... I want to say August or September was when I like first played the piece for Dr. Orange and she was like, this would be really cool with electronics. And I was like, I know <laughs> I was kind of, <laughs> I was like holding off on the electronics. I was like, that's going to be so much. Um, but then like, I realized when I played it for, I was like, yeah, it's, it definitely would be so much cooler with electronics. So I started putting that together around August, September. I didn't finish it until like, I think, October, November, and then I was I went back and I was like, this is not, this is not what I want. So I ended up like all over, like December, January, I ended up rewriting a bunch of the electronic part, adding a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, I started I started like re teaching myself how to play guitar a little bit over December, and that was like when I was like, oh, I'll just add some guitar parts to this. This should be cool. Um, like the most simplistic guitar parts ever i think it's just like a half step or something but um and then i added like some reverb effects to it or whatever but it was super fun to write the electronic part um and how i did that was i just took the midi of the the already written out part i just placed it in my daw and then wrote around it from there my first time ever doing something like that so it was pretty tricky to figure out exactly what I wanted to do sound wise, effects wise and everything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. That, I mean, that piece was just super fun. And so, and I was like, this is a new genre. You've, you've created a new genre, Steven. This is good. (laughs) I don't know about that, but (laughs) (laughs) you can dominate the drum set with, with a Glock and accompaniment, (laughs) the leading voice. Think about it. I'm just saying, think about it. That's all. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, 
you know, as part of your time at Mizzou, your main gig was with the new music ensemble, right? What, what ended up being kind of the, I guess, as normal of a schedule or a plan for that group? So we, we rehearsed uh, two hours, three times a week, um, kind of every, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning. Um, and mostly for that, uh, you know, it kind of depended on the piece. Um, since there were two percussionists in the group, uh, not every piece required two percussionists. Um, funny enough, like when we first started, I don't know if they planned for two percussionists right away. So like our first semester, um, there was a lot of like either or, you know, like me and then Jordan would come in and then I would come in and then Jordan would come in. So we like barely, like we would rarely play together. I think there's only like a couple pieces that we would play together. And they were actually funny enough, originally one percussionist. We just, they were so challenging that we decided, Hey, maybe we could try just splitting the part. Uh, that was kind of a first semester, second semester. There was a lot more, you know, two percussionist pieces cause we got a lot more, uh, um, composers from the school writing for us. So they knew exactly what to write for, for the group. Um, so they were told, Hey, there's two percussionists write for two. And then kind of ever since then, it's been pretty much always two percussionists, whatever piece we've been playing kind of, there's always been two parts at least. Some of the challenge, most challenging parts for that were just setups. <laughs> Funny enough. Um, I think there was uh, a couple pieces where I was just surrounded by instruments. I mean, there's a piece my first semester, I remember being in low call, having to set up the night before just because of how long it took. Um, and so like, it was like four toms, bass drum, vibraphone, two congas, a couple cowbells, I think a cymbal, a gong, uh, wood blocks. Like it was just a whole, I was just surrounded by instruments, just trapped in. There's another piece we played later on where I think Jordan was playing literally every single mallet instrument you could think of. Um, he had a Glock, a marimba, vibraphone, xylophone, like he had everything. And then I was surrounded like with a drum set, a timpano, a couple gongs, a tam-tam, like bunch of toms, bunch of cymbals, like it's crazy setups. Yeah, there's a lot of music that was very challenging as well. I know um, definitely uh, Santi's piece, um, Santi Bass's piece this semester in Relivo, that was by far, I think, the most challenging piece we've ever played in the ensemble. Um, it's with electronics, and so we got to play with a click, but the, uh, the click is constantly changing. It's getting faster, it's getting slower. There's immediate changes. There's so many tempo changes. And so like catching those changes right away and being able to make them with the whole group was by far the challenging part. Um, not even to mention the notes. I think I was like jumping across the marimba at different points. Small guy, big instrument. It's, it's very fun. When you were rehearsing these pieces, because they're all new, they're all new works, right? Yeah. So were were there a lot of times where you would send it back and just be and circle and just be like, however you were trying to, to let them know, like, please rewrite this. Like, 
not often. Not okay. often did that happen. Most of the time that that would happen, it would just be like in rehearsal, and mm. it would be deceptively impossible. It would be like it would look like it was possible. And so we would try it. We would give it, yeah. you know, the old college try, and then it just would not work out. We'd be like, okay, maybe we, maybe we need to change this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be like in rehearsal with the composers. We'd be like, hey, uh, what would you want us to do instead? Um, and sometimes, funny enough, we would even just would drop out certain notes. Wouldn't even ask the composer because, like, I knew the composer well enough that I knew they would just be like, yeah, just drop those notes specifically. <laughs> And because the next part, it would be like I would have to change from bows to mallets within like a single measure. And it's like pretty fast. I would just have to throw them out, throw the bows, grab the mallets and start playing. So what I would do is I would just drop the last bow note and it would be the same as like everything else. So they would just be like, yeah, sure. Just get rid of that note because I want I want the next part to be pretty that next entrance to be very obvious. So. Um, yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of asking, but also a lot of like implying um, what they wanted. Because sometimes you'd ask the composer, and they'd be like, "I don't, I don't know." <laughs> you know, you'd be like, "What sound do you want here? Like, what, what exactly did you mean?" And they'd be like, "I don't really know." And you'd be like, "Oh, okay. Uh, now we got to figure it out." Not a whole lot of that, but maybe a little bit every once in a while. There'd be like a little bit of confusion on all ends. And Doctor Fun was very good at. at kind of figuring a lot of that stuff out too so where were some of the places you all got to perform this music uh we got to play at a lot of places not as many as originally planned um we had a lot of changes due to covid obviously we played at you know various halls in columbia you know we got to play in whitmore i think our first semester that was kind of the original place that enemy would play uh, that soon became Cheryl Crow Hall, formerly known as, or yeah, formerly known as the Room 132, um, but now Cheryl Crow. We got to play there pretty much every concert, but we also got to play at MMEA. That was super fun. Was that the first year? Was that right before the pandemic? Yeah, that was right before the pandemic. Funny enough, we actually had, I think, classes shut down that like Wednesday, I think the Monday was our first NME concert for the semester. We were supposed to have a second one. That was our first one. And it was like two hours long. It was like two hours of music. It was insanely long. And I, I always think back on that concert. I'm like, wow, that was such a long concert. Um, like our concerts are relatively long because we typically have like interviews with composers and stuff. But that's usually like, it's usually only like maybe an hour, a little bit, like maybe an hour 15 of music. That concert was like two hours of just music. It was, it was crazy. Like we just went back to back to back. And then everything shut down that Wednesday, which is crazy to think about. But yeah, so we got to play at MMEA. And kind of a funny story with that was we forgot to bring claves for one of the pieces. And this is like, this is just an example, like a great story of how, you know, wonderful Dr. Arns is. She like went and like she found out about it. She was like, oh crap. She went like, bought a set of like claves from like the the expo hall at MMEA and like brought them to us and that's how we were able to play one of the pieces so yeah that was super great we ended up playing with the orchestra after that too because the orchestra ended up playing a little bit later that day 
uh, but yeah, we got to play, um, most recently we got to play at Sheldon Hall in St. Louis. That was a super fun concert. We, uh, it was for, uh, um, it was kind of like a memorial concert. We played a lot of jazz-inspired pieces, uh, which was super fun. A lot more kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but <laughs> a lot less new music e than <laughs> what we're used to playing. Um, less modernist, less you know, yeah. avant-garde, I guess. Yeah, that was super fun. I think a lot of people enjoyed that. We were supposed to do a South American tour um, my second semester, uh, kind of over the summer. Um, that, of course, got canceled due to COVID. And uh, so that was unfortunate. We were, we tried to maybe plan it the next year, but of course, COVID did not want us to do that still. So uh, I think they might be trying to do that this coming year or maybe the year after that. But yeah, the, the new the new new music ensemble people will probably get that trip, which is going to be cool yeah. for them. Um which, yeah, I think the whole ensemble, except for the flutist Valentina, is leading. Every single yeah. one of us who's graduating. So that'll be a whole new group, which is going to be cool. At what point during your time did it – did either was it offered to you or you had decided to stay around for a third year? I don't remember exactly when. I think I had a meeting. It was a meeting with Dr. Orange, and I think it was the semester that Connor Stevens was here. Uh, I think I, ha I had a couple me uh, meetings with Dr. Orange just about random stuff. I think it was during one of those that she was just like, hey, by the way, <laughs> we're offering this third year. <clears throat> Jordan and Emily have already accepted it. You know, what do you think? And it took me longer to decide uh, just because I didn't really know what to think. I was kind of like, I was always expecting like the two-year deal, you know? So it was kind of like a super big surprise and I like wasn't sure what to do. Um, so at first I was like, oh, well, I'll probably just finish in two years like I planned, right? Like Why, why not? And then I kind of thought about it more and I was like, well, this second year wasn't really a year like we did a lot of recording with enemy that semester uh those couple semesters we did a ton of recording because it just was much easier to do recordings during that um during the pandemic semesters but yeah outside of that there wasn't like any playing really so not a lot of performances not a lot of um experiences to play in front of people so at that point that was what i kind of made the decision i was like you know what i'll do it do that third year. Hopefully it'll be better. We'll get some more performances in. Uh, we'll get some more uh, chances to do some stuff. Plus, made it a little bit easier. I could take more time with some of my classes. I didn't have to try and rush everything, which is super nice as well. Looking back on it, I'm glad that I did it. Uh, definitely. I think it was the better option. Yeah, it did take me a little bit to make that decision right away. It's interesting because I, I talked to Emily yesterday. I think you're alluding to this that it's just that like your second year or, you know, the, basically after the first nine months, it, it was like, what kind of experience is this to, to be your master's, right? Yeah, it was, it was weird. 
super weird time, I think, for everybody. It was just, everyone was like, what's going on? <laughs> we None of us know what's going on, but, you know, we're just going to figure it out. A lot of good things happened during that time period still, but, yeah, it was just very, very strange. Well, what's it meant? I mean, you and I would, I'm, I'm not necessarily not including Jeremiah in this because he came in a year later, but, but what's it meant to be in the program with Jordan and Emily the whole time? It's been pretty fun. I say that as though, like, I didn't say that very excitingly. I think it's been very fun. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're both really good players. They're both very, very good people. It's kind of been a funny, interesting dynamic between the three of us. Funny enough, I've always been, you know, kind of like weirdly like unexcited about things. But, like, <laughs> you know, that, that my, my reaction, of course, was like the perfect way to say it. Because yeah. uh, Emily and Jordan will be like super, you know, energetic. And I'm just always there just like, yeah, man, it's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's always that's always the funny, the funny part about it. Um, but yeah, that, that that dynamic has been really, really interesting. We always have like we have like our different versions of our group, which is funny because, you know, you always kind of have those like different versions where it's like your at home persona, your at work persona, your, you know, with friends persona, you know, and uh, we kind of had that, but all together, it was like our group during rehearsal, our group, like during the hangouts, our group in class, you know, um, and that was just because like, we were kind of always together in a lot of ways. I think our first semester, like it was... It was us three, and then Kyle was also here. Kyle All right. Here. And I think there was very few moments that all of us weren't with somebody of that group. Like, we were always with somebody. Um, so, and then, of course, COVID hit. Uh, Kyle left. Um, and we had kind of our kind of trio at that point. It was just kind of weird because we would have like Zoom calls sometimes and we would just like hang out on Zoom, which was really weird. But also like in the moment, it was, it didn't feel that weird. Like looking back on it, it's kind of like, well, that was kind of strange, right? Because now we're back to like relatively, relatively normal at this point. Yeah. So it's just weird to look back on that and be like, we totally did that a lot. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and that was just us being like, we're bored and sick of being alone at home, you know? <laughs> um, so we would just zoom each other and hang out like very informally, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, got to play with Jordan a lot and then me, I managed to do a duo, I think with every single grad student, which was fun. Um, I got to do a duo with Emily and my recital, I actually got to do a duo with both of them, uh, Emily and Jordan, last year. Uh, I think me and Jordan, we played um, Blue Ridge, and me and Emily, we played Chromio. Um, that was super fun to play with both of them. And then I got to play with Jeremiah this semester with 8-on-3, uh, 9-on-2, and that piece was super fun. Um, it was always funny with our dynamic in that piece because... 
whenever I played that piece, I put like the most amount of energy into it. And Jeremiah was always there, just like meticulously placing all the notes. So he's like so focused, you know. So there's me just like going crazy, like making a fool out of myself, and he's just over there like precisely placing everything. I'm just like, nice. Um, <laughs> different dynamics, which is which is always funny. There was one point where like I felt like I might break the drum head because uh, I went so hard. It was like it, at his recital, and it was, I just went so hard into it. I was like, oh no! <laughs> like right after I hit the drum, I was like, oh no! What did I do? <laughs> what have I done? Super fun to to play with those those guys. We did we've done a, several gigs together. Always fun. Um, we always have our kind of goofy moments, which I would say is probably the best part. Oh, of course, that's what you remember. You remember the pieces, but you remember when uh, <laughs> you, somebody breaks a stick during performance, and you're like, "Oh yeah, it's great." The false starts. I think right. there's been like a couple times when we were playing Torque. There was yeah. like a couple of rehearsals because I think I think it first started off that it was Emily that like false started, like she just like came in because like I think it was like she was like thinking of something and like maybe she wasn't entirely ready for me to start because it was mm -hmm. me and her that was starting and so I started and then she just like freaked out and like really quickly played it and we all just like what <laughs> we all started laughing um, yeah, yeah. and then like funny enough I think the next rehearsal was me that did it. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, man, it came back to bite me. Um, but, yeah, super, super funny moments, you know. Yeah. Were, were you on the uh, Sothis Quartet? Yeah. yeah uh, me and Emily played vibraphone on that. And then Jordan and Jeremiah played marimba. And then we had Liz playing the drum part. So when it came yeah. to Torque, we just kind of swapped that. So it was Jeremiah and Jordan on Vibes and me and Emily on Marimba. Yeah. I don't remember the last time you all played that, the, the Sothis. But played a lot. <laughs> you played a lot. But I felt like, I think I told you all this. I, I definitely told Dr. Orange that I was like, that last time it had, it had gone up a level. And you all had gotten, I could tell that the you were getting to like the expert level uh, you were getting close to that. Like you, you, there was a confidence that you were all were playing that piece, which is super hard, but there was like a little bit of, of, of swagger almost when you were, when you were all doing it. That was awesome. Like it was so much fun to watch you all just like rip into that. I don't know if you could tell, but that was where it felt like it got to that point at the end. Yeah. I think, I think that happens a lot with pieces is like, it's always like when you play a piece so many times, um, and you perform it so many times. I think that's the key is you have to perform it a lot of times. Like eventually it just reaches this point where you're just like, I know this too well. I'm just going to play it, you know, like, and it's, it's like a different energy that you put into it because you just, you don't have to really worry too much about where the notes go and what notes you're playing and stuff like that. So you just kind of, put more energy into it and i think that's always a good thing and i think that's like the level that we're always trying to achieve um but unfortunately because of how many pieces you have to learn like in school specifically you don't get to that point a whole lot um just because you 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 learn a piece and you play it once you know you perform it once or twice maybe um and so it's not often that you get to reach that point with with a piece of music but yeah, I think that last performance, I forget exactly what it was. I don't remember, remember if it was the percussion ensemble 
concert or if it was somebody's recital. But uh, yeah, when we played it last, I I personally felt a whole different energy um, with just myself and with the ensemble, uh, just because it was kind of like the screw it, this is our last time, you know. Yeah, I think that was the I think that was the percussion ensemble concert in the band room. Yeah, was that was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. You know, it's interesting that just that last point you made, I, I, it's it, in terms of the amount of lit that you're having to play is you, there's kind of like the side conversation about how much can you really play well, you know, with a lot of the music because of the fact that you're, it's, you're kind of spread out you go, you're all pre- playing so much. Uh, not just level, not just lit, just in terms of pieces, but level of that, that are really hard. And also there's like the other level of you're playing a lot of new music that you don't even have a reference point for. Do, yeah. do you think about that? That just kind of trying to put some of all of that together. It all kind of stems down from like, I mean, it all depends on how much time you put into the piece mm-hmm. first off. Right. Like I think like that's pretty common it's just you know you got to put a lot of time and effort into the piece before you even rehearse it sometimes you got to put more time than others and sometimes you don't have to put that much time at all you know there there are some times where specifically with like student composers with enemy uh it was always funny because it was either super easy like sight readable (laughs) on the first uh you know rehearsal or like crazy, almost nearing impossible, like level. So it was, it was like very rarely did it reach that in between. And with, you know, no reference, it's kind of like sometimes it's, what do I even do here? Uh, so it's a lot of just problem solving and figuring out, okay, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Right. That was, that was kind of the first thing that I always had to go with was what can I do? What am I physically capable of doing? And that's weird because you have to really think about who you are as a player and how good you are at whatever respective instrument you're playing, which is weird because you want, like you're at school so you can be the best at like everything that you want to be the best at everything, you know, like that's the goal. But obviously that's not a whole attainable goal, right? Uh, so you have to be as good as you possibly can be at whatever you're playing. But when it comes down to playing the music, like at the gig, you just have to, however good you're at, at that instrument, at that point in time, like you gotta, you gotta sell it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're struggling, you know, I don't know, uh, just like name an instrument, like let's say like, you know, vibraphone, for some reason, you're not very good at playing vibraphone. Um, maybe it's the pedal. I don't know. You might need to put a lot more time into those pieces that you're playing vibraphone, right? Weirdly enough, an easier piece, you might need to just do a lot more with it in order to sell it. It just ends up becoming much more of a struggle for anything like that. Uh, for me, definitely marimba. Marimba has always kicked my butt like since I was in like high school. I didn't really learn how to read notes very well until I was like a junior in high school and I was like when I first started like really learning how to read notes well Uh, because I originally played guitar and 
it was funny because I played in a jazz band in high school and my teacher would always ask me to play like the melodies whenever I had them in the charts. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, can I just play the chords, man? Like, <laughs> I got the chords, you know, like I got the chords down. I can do all that stuff. But why do I got to play single melodies? It's weird. Um, so I like never really learned how to do that stuff. And so I always kind of struggled with that. I had a professor in undergrad uh, Kevin Gary, who's like, we're going to, you're going to learn like a xylophone solo or like a marimba solo every week. And I was like, oh crap. You know, <laughs> um, I was like, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. I think I'm much more better at reading now because of that. I think when it comes down to reaching the level that we want with a piece, I would say it's really all about performances. Like you can spend as much time as you can and you're going to kill it in those rehearsals, you know, but it's all about the performances. Like, because weirdly enough, they always tell you like, you know, you always hear the, the, the kind of cliche phrase of, you know, you practice how you're going to perform, but it's, it's almost impossible to do it, you know, because it's, right. it's, so, it's such a different energy yeah. from like, of people than mm-hmm. just like being in front of a mirror or a wall or mm-hmm. a music stand you know it's such different energy and so it's always going to be a little different when you perform it yeah. and that's i think the main key to get to the point where like you're really comfortable with a piece of music um and with playing it is you have to perform it a lot <laughs> and then that's when you're going to reach that point so that's what I would say is kind of the main thing that I found for me personally. Of course, everyone's different. You know, this might not be applicable for everybody. Some people might just need to spend t- hours in the practice room and then they're just going to kill it every time they play it, you know. Um, but for me, it's always that performance. And that's just because I, I weirdly put a lot more energy into those moments because I just, I don't know, it just feels different like to play in front of people. And that's why I think that whole year of kind of the pandemic was super weird because I didn't have that energy. I was missing that energy a lot. Great points. We're going to back up now. Stephen, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, It's about, it's on the East coast, about an hour away from Orlando and a little bit uh, South of Cocoa beach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, space coast, yeah. super fun. Got to grow up watching rockets go off all the time, which was super fun. Um, and I went to Vieira high school. I had a, I was fortunate enough to have a pretty decent percussion program with, um, um, Dan Johnson was the percussion instructor and he did a lot for me, um, when it came to percussion and I, weirdly enough, did not decide to go into percussion until I was a senior in high school, like literally, like, I think a few months before auditions. And I just put together whatever I had ready to go. And that was what I auditioned with. Like, I just, I was like, one day I was like, I don't want to do whatever the hell I was going to do before. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go into percussion because I think it'll be way more fun. And I really like playing percussion. I really like 
playing music. And so that was when I kind of started that whole process and super weird. I had a lot of catching up to do so much catching up to do. <laughs> um, still a lot of catching up to do today. I but, still have a lot uh, of catching up to do. So <laughs> I'm with we you. Do. We all do. You see like one video of, you know, like somebody doing some crazy stuff on drum set or marimba and you're just like, <laughs> how? You're like, how? <laughs> I've wasted my life. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you're like, God damn it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to come back to the the, the uh, East Coast of Florida sec. Uh, but did you have any family members in the arts? I don't have any family members in the arts, but I had a lot of uh, siblings that played instruments growing mm -hmm. up. They just never really – they never went into the professional side of it. Um, that was something that my parents kind of were super into was getting us to learn an instrument. They thought it was really important. Uh, my dad – new guitar but in a very you know minimal kind of way he could play guitar chords and um he's been practicing on and off for ages you know mm -hmm. like most of his life uh but yeah he he just doesn't have you know a whole lot of time to dedicate to it um due to work and family stuff you know but uh so that was how i learned guitar first was uh my dad had a guitar, I just picked it up and he was like showing me some stuff. Um, and then eventually I started taking some lessons and I started learning more about guitar. I quickly got much better than my dad um, just because I was a kid and had a lot more free time. So I just spent a lot more time playing guitar than, than that. And then uh, how I got into percussion was actually my parents were like, you have to do band in middle school and high school. And I was like, okay. So I was like, what am I going to do? I just kind of know guitar. I just kind of want to play guitar. And my brother did percussion. And so I was like, okay, I might try percussion. So I think, I think my options were percussion, tuba, and saxophone were like my wow. three things. Yeah. It was like really close to, really close to playing saxophone actually. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I, I tell people this and they're like, I could never see you playing saxophone. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm glad I chose percussion then. Um, but yeah, those were, those were the three. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to do percussion because, you know, it's something I kind of knew. My brother had done it. So I had some help. I got some hand-me-down sticks and mallets from him. Yeah. So I did that. Uh, my middle school time was basically me just wasting away in the back of a band room. That was always fun. You know, it mm -hmm. happens a lot. Yeah, it was when I was hit high school was when I started actually really getting into it, mostly due to drumline. Um, I think my original goal was I just wanted to do drumline and jazz band. And that was all I wanted to do. And But they were like, nope, you got to be in a wind band. And I was like, okay, fine. And so I did that. I eventually came to enjoy the wind band, but... Uh, at first I was like, I don't want to do wind band um, because of my experience in middle school, of course, sure. mostly just sitting in the back, um, kind of twiddling my thumbs, you know, spitballs at other percussionists, you know, of course. <laughs> the things percussionists do in yep. middle school, pretty much it. And I think my, my sister played saxophone, my other sister played flute, my brother played percussion, my younger sister plays percussion now. Um, so, yeah. Nice. So do you have, you have four siblings? Is that what? Yeah. 
There's a lot okay. of us. And what's the, and you're the, are you the fourth? Is that kind I'm of the you? fourth? My brother's the oldest. I have two older sisters and then a younger sister. Gotcha. It's like, are you by proxy closer to the youngest or are you more middle child? Like I, I cause it's, it's kind of weird when you're in that spot. Yeah. I would say I'm more middle child, okay. but for a while I was the youngest. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my younger sister is like eight years, nine years younger than me. Oh, wow. So okay. For like the first eight or nine years of my life, I was the youngest. Okay. And then she came along and I kind of just got pushed into the middle child <laughs> era. Um, <laughs> kind of me, me and my sister are kind of, my sister's the actual middle child. Uh-huh. So like me and her were kind of in that, that frame. Always interesting. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, the dynamics, especially with five of us. Right. Super weird. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm the, I'm the last of six. So I, I understand the, the large family dynamic. Um, yeah. so, but that's, that's very cool. So the, the reason I brought up the, the East coast of, of Florida is I have family in Cape Canaveral. So I, I had been now it's been a long, I haven't been out there in decades now, sadly, but we used to go a lot, uh, with my family to visit them. Cocoa Beach is like Ron John Surf Shop, yeah. and the uh, is it the Merritt, the mall on Merritt Island? Is that right? Merritt Island, yeah. yeah. So yeah. these are like so like all the. I mean, we I don't think there was a reason for us to go to Melbourne. Is there a reason to go to? Melbourne? I don't know, but not really. But <laughs> um, downtown area is a lot better than it was when I was growing up. Sure. Um, the whole town is much better than when I was growing up. It's weird. I moved out of there and then everything just kind of like leveled up. And I was like, that's why did, why? <laughs> I'm like, why did, why is it when I leave? Was it me? Was it me? I, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, was it me? Was I holding you back? Um, <laughs> so it was, it was nice. always, always weird. Uh, to think of, but yeah, there's much more modern town now, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of nice stuff in the Vieira area, which is kind of like a weird middle sort of town. Um, okay. I don't actually know if it's its own town now, but mm. it was like when I was growing up, it was like a like the nicer part of town. That um, funny enough, I wasn't actually supposed to go to that high school. Uh, I was supposed to go to another high school, much closer. Uh, but they like when my brother went to that high school. Uh, it was like a weird zoning thing where they just didn't have enough students because they were still building up the town. So um, they took students from, you know, Melbourne and kind of were like, hey, you come out here and go to this high school. And so it wasn't until I started going there that they started fixing the zoning stuff. But after my freshman year of high school that they fixed it and it could actually started to make sense because I had to drive like 30 plus minutes just to get to the high school. Um, and so they like, I didn't have a bus or anything. I always had to like hitch rides because I didn't have a car or anything. So I was just like, Hey, can you give me a ride today? I always like found other people. <laughs> I'm just like mm-hmm. on the side of the road, you know, hitchhiking <laughs> to get to high school. We would, so then they fixed it and kind of me and my parents decided like, Hey, I'll just continue going there because I've already gone there a year you know, I've already kind of established something. Plus, um, I was super into the band thing over there. So I kind of was like, I don't want to leave that. Super weird, but yeah. Now that whole town is completely built up, they have a bunch of 
housing places, a bunch of malls and stuff like that. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Every time I go back there, they built something new, and I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and again, still, I see. You're just like, again, was it me? What Did I have I to? Did yeah. I- <laughs> Is it my fault? You know? <laughs> You're built. You're just taking everything personally, Stephen. It seems like I know. Yeah, so so conscious. <laughs> Hilarious. Or how far did you get with playing? Do you still play guitar? Nope. Unfortunately, okay. uh, since I moved here, actually, since I moved to Jacksonville for undergrad, I yeah. didn't really have access to a guitar because I didn't bring my guitar with me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of stopped playing guitar my senior year of high school. Uh, I kind of had the option, which I kind of regret a little bit. Um, but I kind of what I was trying to do was play more percussion stuff because I that was kind of what I was into, and I was kind of sort of on the fence about doing percussion at that point in time. So that was the first year they offered a percussion class at my high school. Um, this is something that's like way more common now in, in Florida, which is super cool. Like, I'm actually going to teach a couple of percussion classes uh, now um, once I move back. And uh, so they're, they offered that. And so I kind of had the option of doing jazz band or that. And I was like, okay, I might do jazz band, but I don't really want to do guitar. I'll probably play drum set. They had way too many drum set players. <laughs> they had like three drum set players. And so I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't play drum set. But I also was like, I want to play more percussion, not guitar. So I decided, okay, I'm not going to do jazz band. I'm just going to do this percussion class. And it was super helpful. I learned my major skills and minor skills, which was super helpful for when I got an undergrad. Um, because I was like the first thing I was asked, you know, like when you get an undergrad, they're like, play your major skills, play your minor skills, mm-hmm. you know, melodic, harmonic, you know. And uh, so I learned a lot of rudiments, learned a lot of other stuff. So that was kind of where a lot of my basis going into college came from. And that was very, very helpful. I don't think I would be here today without that foundation. So um, I don't think I probably would have made it into a college (laughs) without that foundation. So um very very happy about that like what was your what, how would you grade your skill level as a guitarist when you yeah. stop eh, not super <laughs> high but not super not well, super low well what were you most what were you most interested in playing was it just jazz or were you playing like to rock stuff i started playing a lot of rock stuff mm-hmm. um that was like my first obsession was led zeppelin oh sweet with led zeppelin mm-hmm. um that's makes sense yeah. yeah, for many reasons. I, I, Jimmy Page was huge, huge in my guitar inspiration. And mm-hmm. of course, John Bonham was a huge yeah. inspiration for my drum set playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still, I'm still on the market for a 26 inch kick drum. You know? <laughs> yeah. For that, you know, the clear one, the one, the, the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> get the biggest kick drum ever yeah. and just hit the crap out of it. What I mostly spent a lot of time with originally when I was like before I got to like the jazz band thing um, was I was learning a lot of Led Zeppelin tunes and uh, a lot of covers. And then eventually I started um, with my guitar teacher, I started working on a lot of like jazz theory 
chord stuff, learning how to play guitar from from the jazz perspective. And that was kind of the first time that my guitar teacher was like, hey, you probably need to learn how to read notes. <laughs> Tab is not going to get you any further, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, that was the first time where I started to learn how to read notes. Still really sucked at it for like solid year or two. I was writing in the notes, you know, um, which is such a horrible method. I don't know why we always do it, yeah. but we're always like, hey, if I see F or G, you know, I... I'll be able to know what note it is. And that just never works. You know, it's just, there's a reason we don't, we didn't use that system right. you know, to write music. Um, but every time when you're, you know, 14, 15, you're like, that's the way to go. So I did that for a while, but I knew chords really well. Uh, that was something that I, I got really good at was what notes of the chord to play. You know, like root, third, seventh. You can omit the fifth. You know, that was something you could always, you could always mm -hmm. get away with. You could omit the root oftentimes because, of course, if you were playing with a bassist, bass is always going to play. Um, but we would also work on, like, chords that you would need to play when there wasn't a bassist, which is almost never. Uh, we always have a bassist. But, um, you know, just in case you were playing, like, you were just playing guitar because that's one of the cool things about guitar is it's it's almost like piano, right? You could almost just play guitar and it'd be fine. I mean, so many people do it in pop tunes and stuff like that. So uh, it works out pretty well, which is very neat. Like you can't entirely play just drum set. People would be like crazy about it, you know? Um, that was one of the main reasons why I was like, I need to add something like a Glock or something to that, to that piece was, I was like, if I just go out there and wail on a drum set, like some people are going to be really into it, but not everybody, you know, and that, that was tried to make it, you can't please everybody, but try to please as many people as you can. At least I would say I got good enough to play in a high school jazz band. Um, I don't know what, Okay. exactly what level <laughs> that means but yeah. um i was good enough to hang in the the high school jazz band but outside of that i would say i not much and i've definitely lost a lot of that i try like i said i tried to to reteach myself a lot of stuff um this past winter and i ended up just learning a bunch of nirvana tunes by ear <laughs> but I ended up spending my time doing. Um, nice. I was like, ah, screw the theory. I don't want to try and learn all that stuff right now. So, mm -hmm. I was, like, listening to a lot of Nirvana, and so I was just like, ah, I was smells like Teen Spirit. You know, yeah, there we go. or In Bloom or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, with all of the the times that you've gotten to, I assume, play bowed vibraphone. If you brought that bow out for any um, Jimmy Page. Basically, new solos. I've always thought about it. I've always thought about it. Uh, I just never had a personal bow. You know, that's my that's my big issue. Um, as soon as I do, I absolutely will. Um, I'll just be over there, like behind a drum set with a guitar and a bow, and just yeah. trying to like play the drum set. Have you ever seen those videos? By the way, that there's like a video I saw the other day where this guy has this crazy like uh, miniature drum set on the floor. And he's like uh -huh. playing with his feet and then he's playing guitar too. No. It's like, crazy. This is like one man band 
stuff, wow. you know. Um, but I saw it the other day and I was like, this is crazy cool. Um, yeah. There's a lot of that stuff nowadays. Like, yeah. So many people are like, how do I play every instrument by myself? And I'm kind of like, it's really cool. But I feel like in some ways it, it kind of defeats the purpose of playing music, you know, like at least for me. For me yeah. personally, like my favorite part about playing music is playing with other people. Right. Um, and the struggle is, you know, constantly moving around. You know, I, I find a group that I'm playing with and I'm jamming with and that's always fun. And then I got to move on and go somewhere else. Right. So right. that's that's always a struggle is finding a group that I can play with consistently. And that also it helps because then you kind of get used to playing with a lot of different people. So you get used to adjusting and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to tell how people are going to play stuff much quicker, which is, I think, a very good skill set uh, is kind of figuring out how to play with people. Yeah. And multiple different people is how you, you get to that level. If you just play with the same people, you kind of just learn more about those same people, you know, mm-hmm. which don't get me wrong, super useful. I mean, that's how most, like, pop rock bands did it back in the day right so they would just play with the same people for hours and hours and hours and then that's how they made it but yeah. or they would uh they would record with session people and then take the other people <laughs> like the yep. beach boys frequently <laughs> yep. Yep. yeah I, that's always something that i find fascinating about ringo star is one of the main reasons why they decided to add Ringo to the Beatles was because of his ability to be good enough for them to record with him. Like their old drummers, like they, like their old drummer was, uh, they would always need to get a session drummer, mm. which was unfortunate. So they were just like, we don't want to pay for a session drummer when the rest of us are just doing it. So like, we'd rather just have a drummer. And so they found Ringo and yeah. they were like, yeah. So that was, that was something really interesting. I got, I like nerded out over Ringo, I think a year ago. Nice. You have to remember that he, he, there was literally no one else who was, who was like a, that, that idea of a rock and roll drummer had not existed yet. And so he was kind of creating that on his own. And then you have to remember that during that entire time, when they're playing live, they can't, the, the audio equipment was garbage and they can't hear each other because the crowd is yelling so much. And so he basically is like, I basically had to play like two and four and just as loud as possible (laughs) so we could even play together. (laughs) And have fantastic time. Yeah. I mean, you think about nowadays, so many drummers, like they have the in-ears. I've played with the in-ears a couple of times. Like you always have that click, you know, you don't really need to really have as good of time as you, you had to have then because like you said, you could barely hear anybody. So yeah. You have to be like consistent, super consistent. And he was, I mean, yeah. something else that always fascinates me is, you know, like when you hear people who layman people, like they kind of don't really understand how good Ringo really was, mm-hmm. you know, they're always like Ringo was the worst Beatle. Right. And it's like, you gotta think he was the best gigging drummer in Liverpool at that time. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Like that was the first thing I, I found out when I, when I was like, geeking out over him um during that time i was like he was like actually the best option for anybody at that time like just because and he i always 
find the funny story of him like grabbing his drum set from the bus and like taking it up a block and then going back and grabbing the rest of it because he couldn't grab it all in one go. So like he would just like take it one block so he could see it. And nobody would steal it. And that was that's always I'm just like always picturing him kind of like scurrying yes. back and forth. Okay, so there's a couple like retorts to some of that. One is, well, look who he, he was playing with freaking Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison. Like, you oh, are yeah. going to be the worst of the four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're three always, geniuses, basically. But the other thing is what's super fat, what what one of the things that, that I recently kind of I nerded out on on the Beatles part was trying to figure out what they actually played on these Hamburg gigs when they were playing for like eight hours at a time. And you're just like, yeah. what, what, what music was, a and you have to think like, it's, it's all this, like either super early, like um, rockabilly or like the earliest rock and roll or Broadway tunes or folk. Like they basically had to play every single genre just to have enough music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cover. And they were really, really good learning stuff by ear. Yeah. Like that was something I learned from watching the the Get Back kind of documentary like that. That was something I did not know about them was how good their ears were. Their ears are amazing. Like yeah. Way way better than mine. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> mine is not that good. Yeah. Uh, and they, they were just learning all these tunes. They could just learn all these tunes by ear. And I mean, yeah, no, a lot of the tunes aren't necessarily super uh, – complicated right you have like maybe like three four chord tunes but mm. um and you know melodies are typically at that time where i think uh it was like a huge portion of uh of melodies were just pentatonic scales right so nothing super complicated but still to learn that many things by ear that well and you know they did never really put a label on it either you know, they never were like, this is a pentatonic scale or this is a one, four, five, you know, or two, five, one, you know, like they never really put a label on it. They just kind of were like, here's this chord, here's this chord, here's this chord. Uh, this is the first note, next note, next note, you know. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating because you can get so good at music without learning a single thing about music. Yeah. Which is really cool. Fascinating. It's really cool. Great to hear from Stephen, and stay tuned for next week's episode, where you'll hear part two of Stephen's story. This week's rave is the 2021 film The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, Jesse Buckley, Peter Sarsgaard, and written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, now streaming on Netflix. This was a film that garnered much praise as well as some Oscar nominations during the past movie award season. And after finally seeing it, I can see why. First-time writer and director Maggie Gyllenhaal, well-known for acting in many movies over the past 25 years or so, directed the film based on a book by author Elena Ferranti. The plot of the movie follows a woman in her late 40s, played by Coleman, who is a college professor and is on holiday. During the holiday, she becomes weirdly connected with a family who may or may not be mafia-connected, but includes a young mom, played by Dakota Johnson, 
who's struggling to keep up with being a mom and having a husband who does not feel particularly involved. As she's seeing all this happen, you are transported back in time to Coleman's own life as a young mom in flashback sequences played by Buckley as Coleman's younger character. This includes her own struggles bringing up two young children, as well as some of the decisions that she made in her own life to lead to where she is today. This includes a crucial decision to stray from her own marriage by forming a relationship with an intellectual, played by Hall's real-life husband, Peter Sarsgaard. There's a lot to take in here for this movie, but what makes it great is due primarily to the effectiveness of the storytelling and the directing by Hall, along with the acting. Johnson is very good in this role of an annoyed, confused mom. She plays the interactions and challenges of trying to be a decent person while dealing with an annoying family. Sarsgaard is great in his brief role, but definitely secondary to young Olivia Coleman's character played by Buckley, who really goes for it and portrays the joys and lows of both being a mom and the consequences for her actions. But the star is once again Olivia Coleman. I'm not sure what actor right now is doing better work than she is, particularly after she burst onto great prominence with her Oscar-winning role in The Favorite, which is a very good movie, and if you haven't done so, watch her Oscar-winning speech. It's an all-time favorite. She's continued high-level work since, and this is no exception. She plays the role in this film with both complete clarity, fully in the moment, but also allowing for the recall of the moments of her past to showcase in her current day in life. It's a lot of both inward and internal character work, along with getting chances to let loose. It's a fantastic performance. I should point out that it is a tough movie to watch because it gets very deep and is very emotionally challenging. But if you're up for it, check out The Lost Daughter, now streaming on Netflix. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. I'll catch you next time for part two with Stephen Landy. Until then.